Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, the founder of Roland Ransfield PR. On National Storytelling Week, this episode of We Built This City is dedicated to stories about Manchester, the places. You'll hear from poets, broadcasters, entrepreneurs and more who share their stories of the buildings, streets and venues that hold such strong memories for them. Stories are woven into the fabric of the city. In the last episode, I talked about how stories inform your view of the world. Every Mancunian, born, bred and adopted, has their own Manchester story. From the places that they've lived, worked and socialised. Or maybe you have a story about a place in Manchester where you go, just because that place makes you feel a particular way. Sometimes it's difficult to say why you're drawn to one place over another. Like the poet Lemsey say, who grew up in Atherton, but was always drawn to the city centre. Manchester had always been glinting on the horizon across the Lancashire Plain. I could actually, I could actually see it from the, the what's called the Pretoria Hills yeah. uh, in Atherton, which is the final village that I was brought up in. And people always spoke about Manchester as being a place where you can get mugged and they talked about Moss Side as a very terrible place without acknowledging that Manchester City football ground was right at the heart of Moss Side. <laughs> Thousands of people came from all over the country to go to Moss Side, but nobody made that connection. They were quite happy to tell the stories of muggings and blah, blah, and destitute housing and that kind of thing. But they weren't willing to say, well, actually, you know, my, my uncle goes there every Saturday <laughs> to watch football. It's funny how the narrative of a city can be shaped. And the more people that believe it, the more people that don't contest it. Mm. It's incredible. Mm. Um, I'd run away to Manchester when I was in Atherton. I ran away barefoot. Gosh, to, did you? Yeah. To Manchester. I remember I slept outside of, it wasn't Murray's Records in Moss Side, there was another record shop and I slept outside of, I slept outside of that. <laughs> when you were in a teenager? Yeah, 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 yeah. I walked up the East Lanks Road. No Google Maps then, right? No, absolutely. Walked up <laughs> the East Lanks straight Road. straight line. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a pretty straight line, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. The East Lanks Road, that's sort of, it's like a Roman road, isn't it? Straight yeah. between Liverpool and Manchester. Manchester. Living in Manchester at that particular time has given Lem his own poetry about the place. Because when he got here, he found an incredibly exciting city full of like-minded, creative people. It was John Thompson, Henry Normal, Johnny Dangerously, I Am Clue, Carolina Hearn, Steve Coogan. We came across each other constantly through doing live gigs. And this is before comedy had split so kind of unceremoniously, I think, from live music and from poetry. This is when they all performed together, you know. Mm. Mm. But for me, anyway, to watch these incredible luminaries appears, you know, just go on to just hit right at the heart of popular culture. Yeah. Right to this day, you know, yeah. to this time with Steve Coogan, right to this day is a joy, yeah. you know. And then to watch Johnny Dangerously from I Am Clute, you know, rise up with I Am Clute. And then to see your elbows, you know, and to just look at Noel Gallagher and, and Liam and what they did at that time. And so you had all parts of culture all happening, like a major, major firework display. You could almost put your hand on the ground and, and hear bass lines from the night before, you know, and feel <laughs> them. 
There was some, there really <laughs> was it. something, yeah. and it, it's good to look back at because I didn't know at the time. I love that line from Lem, where he says you could feel the bass lines from the night before in Manchester streets. Lem has moved away from the city now, but as he says, his heart is always in Manchester and he's back here very often. When you find your way back to Manchester after some time away, you find that the city skyline has changed again and again. Whole districts have sprung to life in completely different ways, like the Northern Quarter and Ancoats, New Islington, Spinning Fields, as well-known and well-loved buildings are restored and repurposed. This story from property company Bruntwood's chief executive, Chris Oglesby, is a great example of how stories about nostalgia and memory can lie within certain buildings. Chris's dad started the company and his first acquisition was a gas meter factory in Farnworth. So perhaps it's unsurprising that when a certain place came to Chris's attention years later, he knew exactly what to do. One of the first things I did when I came back to Manchester, uh, you're talking about Farmworth, was when I was working as an investment agent in London, I got the particulars of Farmworth Market precinct over my desk and thought, I know somebody sentimental that would be quite interested in buying uh, Farmworth Town Centre. So I sent the details up to my dad and sure enough, he did buy it. And it was a bit of a challenge. The roofs leaked. Um, the market traders were, were were permanently on the phone. So my first job I was given when I got back to Manchester was managing, re- uh, replacing the roof of uh, a Farmworth precinct and dealing with all the individual market traders, uh, which again was a great experience. And I think it, you know is understanding. I have a love for owner managed retail and leisure businesses. Uh, I just think they you know that they're, they're such an important part of place and the relationship that people have with those businesses because they're having a relationship with the person that owns it as well is so much different so different to dealing with uh, a chain or whatever so uh, so that's my part i can trace it all the way back to that but that's part of the reason that we just love dealing with owner managed uh, owner managed businesses in uh, in that in those sectors and why i'm so excited about town centers at the moment yeah. Yeah, it's such a lovely story. And I think as well, that's, well, we were lucky enough to work on the Northern Quarter. And at the time they said, we it's going to be the Greenwich Village of Manchester. And when I looked at it, I thought, my God, there's some work to do here. And of course, it's that and more really now. But I think because there's so many independents, that really gives the heart to that kind of that area of the city, doesn't it? And it's wonderful to see their businesses flourish because of the environment and because of the people. Absolutely. Chris's company, Bruntwood, has developed and managed unique and creative spaces around the city, from Afflex to the new Manchester Technology Centre. And as Chris said, business has such an important relationship to place and the way it impacts people. One person who knows that very well is the broadcaster Eamon O'Neill. You'll hear him talk about the history of the Granada Studios in a moment, but first I wanted you to hear the story of how we got to work there in the first place. Because I love that story that you tell about when you decided you wanted to work at Granada, that you hung around the entrance to the studio was like pestering people and asking people how you could get a job. I didn't see it as pestering at the time. <laughs> I'm sure they did. Yeah. Oh, no. Well, I, I, was, I always wanted to work at Granada and I did do a bit of extra work because um, I had been a drama student and I thought, I know, I'll be an extra for a couple of weeks and then I'll be, and then I'll be spotted and get a proper acting job. That never happened. Um, no, I did. Uh, I, I always wanted to work at Granada and I applied, you know, through the usual channels a number of times and got nowhere. They're very difficult jobs to get and they are, but they were then and I think they are now. And I did used to go down and hang out and I just got to know people and there was the stables bar at the time. I used to go in there and just, uh, you know, 
people just see it that often. They think that you do work there already. Um, not that they were paying me to do that, but then, you, you know, you just meet people and you say, oh, he's the exec producer of this and he's a researcher on that. And um, again, I was one of the oldest kind of work placements without it being an official workplace because I just turned up and became familiar. So I never got the jobs I applied for ever, but I did end up there as a presenter with Becky, as I've explained on, on What's New. So I was thrilled to bits. I loved it. I loved every minute of being in that iconic building that has such great stories. And I know your office was there, Lisa. You mm. have the great three years there. You're still connected now, aren't you? Because you're in the London yes. warehouse. Yeah. But the stories, I'm sure you've heard all of these, that when the Bernstein family were creating Granada, they chose Manchester because, well, they were they were in cinemas, weren't they, the Bernsteins? They chose Manchester because of its reputation for being wet. And they thought people would stay in and watch this newfangled telly. <laughs> But they called it Granada after the place that they had their family holiday homes because it was sunny. So to counteract the, the, mm. the wet Manchester image. And they designed that building like a hotel. So it was a corridor down the middle and the offices were out either side. And the reason they did that was because if this newfangled thing called television didn't work out, they would convert it to a hotel. And another great thing about the Bernsteins, they, uh, the biggest studio was 12 number 12, Studio 12, where they did all Stars in the Rise and all of that. But there weren't 12 studios. There was a little one, which was a presentation studio for a bit called One. Then there was two, which was the smallest of the rest of them, where we did Granada reports and various regional stuff. Then there was six, eight, and 12. There was no four. <laughs> there was no 10. It was just pure... Well, yeah, no, it was fantastic. And they had a picture of P.T. Barnum in every producer's office to remind the producers why we were there. We were there to entertain. Many, many, many years later, um, when the world had changed, when we were sitting in a, a very senior meeting and the, the chief executive said to us at that point, why are we all here? So we all launched into, to entertain, to educate, to inform. No, we're here to sell advertising space. And that was a point in time where the old school realized that the world had shifted. Uh, I was kind of on the cusp of old school and new school. Um, but no, I absolutely, I can't think of a single moment that I didn't love working at Granada. Granada Studios was one of those buildings that evolved over time and held special memories for so many Manx. It was an iconic building and we absolutely loved our years there as a business. Sharon Latham is a photographer who worked in another iconic place in Manchester when she was the official photographer for Manchester City. But she wasn't in Manchester when she found herself in the wrong place, right at the wrong time. On that occasion, she was at Wembley. So we'd won. We'd won the freaking FA Cup and it was like, yes. And I remember Carlos going up the steps and everybody following Carlos up the steps and they were all going to get the trophy and, oh... And I remember this, this steward saying, this um, sort of like official PR guy from, from Wembley saying, you can stand in this bit because you're the club photographer and this guy can stand here and, and this will happen and that will happen. Meanwhile, behind us, they were setting up the trophy champagne thing. So I'm like, right, okay, well, I'll track them getting the trophy, photograph them coming down the steps and I'll, I'll turn around and I'll get the shot of them on the, on the podium before they pop the car on the champagne. So I did this and... and Tevez was being silly as he's coming down the steps and using the lid as a hat, and then he dropped it and cracked it, by the way. Um, <laughs> put it back on, messing about. Everybody walks onto the podium, so I thought I'll get centre spot here, so I walks a bit further, goes a bit closer, getting all the angle lined up. And um, and then they all started just going, oh, you know, like to lift the trophy up and pop the champagne. 
And literally, as the pot went and I got the photograph, the next thing, I'm on the deck. I'm on the floor. Somebody rugby tackled me to the floor. And I was like, what the actual fuck are you doing? And I got up. And this steward's like, get out, get out. And I looked behind me. And there was 95 of the world's press and media trying to get that shot that I'm stood right in the middle of. So all they got was my fat ass bent over taking that shot. And that was it. 35 years of no trophy, and the trophy list comes to it, and Shaz gets her ass in it. <laughs> well, honestly, no, the thing is, <laughs> it, was not, it was not good. So as soon as all the pandemonium ground and we went into the dressing room and I got all these fantastic shots in the dressing room, I'd forgotten about it then. I come out and um, one of the officials comes over to me. Uh, you've got a phone call. You need to go and speak to this person on the phone. And basically it was a case of the photograph that you've just taken of that trophy lift, you will have to give to everybody now. You can't keep it. In the world. Nobody got that shot. Nobody got it. So, uh, yeah, I had to give that shot. And then I had to send individual emails to every single one of the newspapers, PR companies, press companies, independent freelance companies that all lost the shot, apologising and saying about my enthusiasm and lack of knowledge and it wasn't intentional because some of them thought I'd done it on purpose. Yeah. And that's just not my bag, man. I, I would never have done that. Yeah, good job the, the guy rugby tackled me moved because I'd have decked him. I know, I was going to say, brave man. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't believe it. And I was so in shock and didn't understand what he was doing. <laughs> but you know what? No fucker stopped me walking on. <laughs> no one me in the middle of it. Oh, that's a, there's plenty of room at the top because no one's prepared to do that, are they? So well done, you. you have you kept that email? Because I bet you weren't doing much partying, were you, that night? If you were no. that. No, but I had to write them individually to ones that I knew as well. And, and do you know what? I'm not, I'm not joking now. For about 12 months, some of those uh, key agencies were a bit shitty with me because I had to control, I had to help control at the stadium. Every time we had a home game, it was me that organised the passes and uh, accepted uh, photographers that were coming in to photograph games, which was a, a logistical nightmare in some instances because there's only so much space. At the big games, you've got every agency and every uh, you know press society that wants to come and photograph it. So they weren't very. <laughs> you off the Christmas card list? <laughs> I was off the Christmas card list for a long time, but I managed to worm my way back and be pleasant and nice to everybody. And uh, oh. and when I left, and I remember when I left City, they all clubbed together. They got the shot of my ass taking that photograph, framed in this beautiful frame, and every single one of those photographers signed it around the outside such a great story and it's one of those stories where you might not feel so great at the time but as the years pass it makes for a great anecdote someone who can sympathize with that is hits radio marketing manager Siobhan Johnston there are a lot of well-known spots in Manchester but Siobhan's got a story about a place that you might not even have known existed tell us a couple of stories about the travel industry then because it's um <laughs> as you say it was character building stuff Every Friday, my boss used to come in with a carrier bags full of shop, shopping. And every Friday afternoon, she'd send me into Manchester with her shopping bags to go and return the items of clothes to Marks and Spencers or other well-known chain stores, <laughs> not just Marks and Spencers. And every week I went off. And I remember a couple of times thinking... Why did she bought a size 22 pyjama top when she was absolutely tiny? And anyway, you just get on with it. And it, 
it transpires that one afternoon I'm in Kendall's in Manchester and it was this boutique part of the store and I've gone up and I've, I've got this coat in this bag and I says, I'd like to return this for a credit note. It was credit notes and vouchers, remember? Mm. And this shop assistant said, okay, can you just wait here a moment? And I'm stood there and, you know, what... Looking, looking round as if no, nothing, you know, even entered my head what was going to happen next. And next thing, this burly security guard just comes striding over and said, the coat that you brought back is stolen. You're going to have to come with me. And I was like, oh no, like my boss. And she would never take calls off anybody that she didn't know. She would never. So... I'm in tears in the cells in Kendall's downstairs. You've actually got cells in the basement of Kendall's. In tears. And they kept ringing her and ringing her to, to clarify my story. And she wouldn't take the call because obviously she hasn't got a clue who's ringing her. She just didn't answer the phone to them. She was telling one of my ex-colleagues, I don't know who it is, tell them to ring back <laughs> on Monday and I'm there in this cell. <laughs> so I ended up ringing my mum in floods of tears. And my mum, I mean, God love her, my mum's a grafter. She was, you know, a civil servant for over 50 years. So I've rang my mum at work in absolute floods of tears. I think they let me ring my mum because I was like, you can't ring her, I need to tell her. And I'm like, mum... Well, she got on the phone to my ex-employee and she gave what for. And needless to say, I was released within about 10 minutes of that (laughs) phone call. But again, my mum's one of them. You can say what you want to her, but you don't mess with her family. So yeah, literally 10 minutes later, I was released and back to my place of work and um, a lot of apologies. And I don't think it happened again. I don't think I took shopping back ever again for her. So from behind bars to in a bar, so many stories start in a bar or a pub, but I want you to hear about one night in the Dog and Partridge in Didsbury that changed the career of Liam Manson, the founder of Didsbury Gin. There's a pub in Didsbury called the Dog and Partridge, and at the time they had something like 86 or 96 gins in there, and one day I went, right, we're going to go in and do them. Um, <laughs> we, did, we didn't get very far, but anyway, we went in there and said, right, we're going to work our way through. And then it was getting out close to kicking out time, which was later than it is nowadays. Um, and the receipt come and literally it was like a scroll. So you know them like cartoon <laughs> scrolls. So we we opened it up and Mark just went, oh, there's got to be a cheaper way of doing this. So I've gone to the toilet and then you stood by the urinal and normally you have a single song or you're thinking about <laughs> something at the urinal. So I just thought, yeah, there's got to be. And then I went, maybe we, I went back to the table and it was like, maybe we should. I didn't have a clue what I was on about. And then I've gone home, carried on drinking. I think he's he's gone home as well. And then the next day, um, I've got all these like eBay receipts in my email. So I've bought like a little still, like botanicals. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to have a go at it. Made made a bit of gin. Um, it was terrible. So then I, I kind of just kept texting him apparently through the night. Oh, you can try this, you can try that. Because I, I must have been sat on the laptop like researching how you make this stuff. And then we went down to a few distilleries, told them what we want to make, worked with them and made a recipe. And all this had happened in the space of a week. So it we went from the pub to a bottle in a week. And did you manage to get a full bottle? 
We did on this one, yeah. Um, but I, I know where you're going with this, actually. <laughs> <laughs> because, well, that bit then, that's about the brains and the blood coming together because you got through the door at Selfridges early on, didn't you, with, with half a bottle of gin we and, nearly didn't and a brand get there name. as well. So um, what happened there? Yeah, so obviously we'd, we'd, we'd made this, we had this gin that we'd been at with distillery and made, um, come back to, and it was really, really good. So we I kind of twisted Mark's arm to put on a tasting event at a bar he was managing just to like friends, family, get them to see what we'd been up to making this gin. Because none of them were believing we were making gin. But obviously this tasting event, I kind of stitched him up and invited about 60 people, the MEN I invited, <laughs> other bar owners, um, and like he'll probably tell this better than me, but you know, by the end of it, we had probably fifty or sixty people crammed into this back room in a bar. His head fell off because he had to make drinks for them all. I'd orchestrated this big tasting event. We only had a couple of bottles of gin, but we did blind tasting in gin and tonics, and every we made people fill out cards, and everyone picked our gin over at one of the most popular gins on the market. So we've got some here. We've definitely got something, and obviously we were pretty well lubricated by the end of the night <laughs> so I've gone home again there's a pattern here but every time I go home after a night out something good or bad happens I don't don't, don't know which way this one's going to go but I've gone home I've gone on LinkedIn because I was working in business development at the time for construction so that that part of my brain's kicking in I've gone on LinkedIn messaged the buyer for Harvey Nichols, Selfridges Fortnum and Masons I don't know why we went luxury to be honest because he's an Aldi around the corner <laughs> But um, messaged all the buyers, told them we're coming down t- to meet the other person. And one only one of them, to his credit, um, replied to the buyer for Harvey Nichols. It, it turned out was a man who'd moved to London, so he was really keen to find out what was going on. So we booked ourselves a meeting with Harvey Nichols. We had a brand name, loose branding concept that we messed about with on the computer, but wasn't really a business. So the next uh, when we booked this meeting in London... We've stopped off at the Greggs in Didsbury because obviously they do a great bacon sandwich and coffee <laughs> meal deal, don't they? And at the time, you know, money's tight and all that. So we uh, we 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 bumped, we bumped into the um, the dry cleaning ladies from the Johnsons Dry Cleaners next door. It's quite a small place, Didsbury, and everyone knows everyone. So like, oh, hey, he's off. So oh, yeah, we're going down to London to to pitch this gin. So I've opened this like Only Fools and Horses style briefcase that we took with us, and the bottle. No word of a lie, <laughs> I can still see it rolled off the table. And Mark, like, lit, it was like a, you know, you see like cartoons saving in slow motion. <laughs> grabbed the bottle before it was a disaster, before it even started. So yeah, it was an eventful journey before we even set off. Got to London, did the tasting, and then. We sat like a room smaller than this and he's tasting it with his buyers. And we just thought, oh, they've got a local produce bit in the Manchester store. They'll buy it for that and we'll get some bar listings. You know, we'll have a little side hustle because we had day jobs at the time. Um, and he tasted the gin and, you know, to his credit, he was like, oh, it's you know, really nice, one of the best I've tasted. How much have you got? It's a straightaway sales mode. How much do you need? Uh, well, if we did, you know, a, a six-month exclusive rollout across all our stores, so I'm booting Mark <laughs> under the table, like, you know, with, um, I'm like, yeah, yeah, no problem, we can do that. Got in the lift, I mean, I've got a picture on my phone, I'll show you in the lift. So we're, we're jumping about in the lift. Forgot to press the button, didn't we? So the doors were still... <laughs> so they, they saw all that. But anyway, so we went out and celebrated that, you know, you know, getting this list in. And then on the train home, because back to Manchester, it was like, oh, shit. 
uh, what we're going to do, we've got, we've just got this listing. So, you know, we thought, right, we'll just, let's just be straight with a buyer and say, look, it's a new business. We haven't got really a plan of how we're going to do this. You like the liquid. And if you think it's as good as you said it, it's going to be, you'll give us a two months just to get our, basically our asses in gear. And, you know, Harvey Nichols supported us through that. They, they, they gave us two months. And it's like, we'd rather than panic, we went and seen the growth company who are like a Greater Manchester yeah. business support agency, if you like. And they helped us like with a business plan. They helped us kind of put a loan pitch together to get a government startup loan. So literally from having that light bulb moment at the urinal in the dog and partridge, <laughs> and then probably three months after, we was on the shelves in Harvey Nichols. Liam and his business partner, Mark, are two great Manchester entrepreneurs with a fantastic story. Another great Manchester entrepreneur who's had a huge impact on the city skyline is Tom Bloxham, the founder of award-winning regeneration company Urban Splash. As you can imagine, he's full of stories about Manchester. He told me about the historic buildings that inspired what became Urban Splash. It's said that you're Manchester's equivalent of Ray Kinsella, who Kevin Costner played in Field of Dream, so if we build it, they will come. In the early 1990s, when I came back to Manchester from uni, all the buildings were black. I mean, there was actually, you couldn't get anything to eat on a Sunday. The city was shut at nine o'clock at night. What did you think was going to make people want to come back into the city centre and live here? I mean, you're absolutely right, Lisa. The city was empty. Shutters literally came down at five o'clock at night. No one's around the city centre. And I suppose I've been lucky enough to do a bit of travelling in Europe and I've been to America and I've seen so in New York. And there are these amazing buildings in Manchester city centre um, with high ceilings, big windows, great, you know, we knew they could make amazing loft apartments. And yet everyone was moving out. The refuge, the Sean's company, had just moved out of their amazing mm. building into a, you know, fairly average building in the suburbs. And we started thinking about it. And we realised, why did nobody live in the city centre? And as you go back 100 or 200 years, it was full of people living there and the richest people lived in the city centre of Manchester. But as the factories came and the smog and the cheap workers, the rich people, if you like, the burghers of Manchester moved and they moved southwesterly by and large because of evading winds. And so first of all to Victoria Park, then to Wally Range, then to Didsbury, then to Wilmslow, then to Audley Edge. And you just saw this exodus in the city centre. But actually, those factories are now closed down. There was no smog. There were no more back-to-backs. And actually, Manchester was a great place to live, we thought. And so we started developing in Manchester and other regional cities and bringing some amazing architecture in and converting very cheaply. Remember the first building we did in Liverpool actually was Concert Square and it cost us £27 a square foot to convert it. We sold it for £60 a square foot. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the apartments were amazing value. In Manchester, we did Sally's Yard, we did Smithfield buildings, we did Britannia Mills, you know, and the early adopters were brave, Mm -hmm. but they really got the rewards because they've seen, you know, the value of their homes um, go up manifold. So you've got everyone from poets to developers to entrepreneurs with their memories and inspirations that have come from Manchester, the place. But what do people outside this city region think of us? Vikas Shah is an entrepreneur, investor and philanthropist. He's got some great ideas about creating a new story about a city that's always looking forwards. Is how brilliant we think we are as a city matched internationally. So Manchester's got this curious brand abroad, right? Where I think the engine of what's made Manchester successful internationally is quite disconnected from what what Manchester wants it to be. So, you know, we were at the heart of the Industrial Revolution, meaning that 
our tentacles have spread around the world, even across the global south, meaning that people always knew about Manchester and as a, as a place of aspiration, right? And then sports came along. And so, you know, there I am getting in a taxi in Kigali in Rwanda and the guy goes, so where are you from, brother? And I'm like, Manchester, ah, Manchester United, it's great. Ah, you know, it's, um, it's this sense of fondness and warmness which people see Manchester with, which I think is a very powerful thing. I think the challenge is Manchester, like so many places, and it's not, it's not, a, it's not a Manchester only criticism, but so many places do start to believe their own hype. So, you know, Manchester talks up that it's a, a you know, top five global destination for digital. And when you talk to people internationally, a lot of these things that we say that we are world-class at just aren't reflected in their view of the city. So that might be a function of communication. It might be a function of hype and reality being mismatched, but it certainly is reflective of, of, of how people internationally see us. I think Manchester opens a lot of doors because a lot of people know we exist. But then it's up to us to describe and ascribe the what next, which is, I know Manchester, but why? And we can only dine out on football and industry for so long. You know, the world at some point will get tired of hearing about Cotton and Manchester United and the tales that we wheel out at every possible event. So I think it's for us as a city to decide what will that narrative be and how do we effectively communicate that in a way which is really authentic? For example, across Europe, Manchester's probably the number one place for e-commerce. You know, if you take a swathe of the top, the largest and most successful e-commerce businesses in Europe, most of them are based here. Now, that's a story worth shouting about. You know, we have the largest civic university. We have Nobel laureates. You know, we, we have so much that we genuinely are world-class at. And so perhaps we need to have that conversation a bit more honestly about what are we great at and what are we not great at and how can we get there? Thanks for listening to this special episode of We Built the City for National Storytelling Week. We Built the City will be back in a couple of weeks. If you want to find out more about how Roland Dransfield can help you drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head to rdpr.co.uk. Or you can find us on Instagram at Roland Dransfield or Twitter at RDPR Tweets. Or feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 25 years on 0161 236 1122. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review and follow We Built This City. And if you listen on Spotify, you can rate us on there now too. Just look for the three dots underneath the We Built This City picture and it should give you the option. Thanks again and see you next time. Mm -hmm.